Welcome to Cycle Start, conversations around manufacturing, design, and entrepreneurship. I'm Andrew Henry, and joining me today is John Hauptman of Filster Holsters. John, how are you? I'm great, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's been a long day. It's not yet Friday, but it feels like it could be. And um, I've been working on prototyping. We've talked about a few new projects this week. Uh, full disclosure, John and I work very closely together. We have a close business relationship. Um, this is not strangers meeting on a podcast, but close friends and business um, business associates, talking shop, turning back the clock, talking about some history, other fun stuff like that. So um, I wanted to really turn back the clock to uh, the battle days of the hardware hunt because I was thinking about that today. I was digging around. I was digging around in some bins of stuff in my shop, and I found a whole bunch of random assorted fasteners. Dude. I had some aluminum screw posts that weren't yeah, even like. I was, like, I was oh. about to ask you. Remember when the only black oxided or uh, uh, black coated posts we could get a hold of were aluminum? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a big upgrade when I stepped up to like black brass. I'm like, wow, this is like real metal. It still scratches, and you cross-thread it. You, you look at it wrong, and it cross-threads. But, but at it's least not... I can't squeeze it between my fingers. Yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't break this thing at least without tools. The way that it's changed and the way that our ability to design has changed based on the easy availability of all kinds of hardware and accessories, there's this really interesting chicken and egg thing that I've been thinking about when I look at a lot of the holster shops because... I was talking with Dale on the phone a couple of days ago, and we had a, a brief conversation about that same thing, how holster shops have just proliferated. They're all over the place. There's tons of them. And realizing that most of those shops have come into business and come into the market at a time when the only supply hurdle they faced is cash flow. Oh, yeah. They, they, they just pick what they want off the menu. They can get pre-made molds they can get uh sheet stock cut uh to size they can get every piece of hardware that they could possibly want they can get off the rack vacuum formers and they can just plug and play the workshop there's like a good and a a, a, a bad to that you know um start with the good what's the good the good is that this availability of resources is a net benefit to everyone who's making holsters even to us so all of our suppliers can have more of what we need at better prices and totally we are also in a position to occasionally take advantage of the things that those suppliers generate in order to grow their market share so like all sorts of like little widgets and bits and pieces become available to us the downside of that is that there are a lot of people making holsters who have never really substantially struggled through making a bad holster or learning the process or coming to know how to make a holster through working through design problems. They can just pick up the kit and execute it, which is fine because on, on the one hand, it becomes harder and harder for the customer to wind up with a, with a lousy holster which is the most crucial part. A net benefit right. across the board. But on the other hand, you, you wind up with a lot of people who are sort of making holsters in a paint-by-number fashion. Yep. And 
don't have a whole lot of design or troubleshooting or creative or you know like a, a creative process behind what they're doing. I saw a holster recently, and it had an issue with the active retention system that was installed on it. Yeah, I saw and that it too. It looked clearly like a case of somebody buying some off-the-shelf components, understanding roughly the orientation they're supposed to go together with, but not really understanding how the parts interact when they move. And then putting together the holster in such a way that certain combinations of gun and light render the retention hood inoperable. And right, like, or, Wait a or, they, or they were suffering under the assumption that the SLS hood is supposed to touch the back of the gun, keeping it in the holster. And instead, yeah. of, instead of it being a physical barrier to the gun coming completely out of the holster. You know, it's like a speed bump on the way out of the holster. There's, you're supposed to be able to draw the gun like a half an inch before it encounters anything. The strap, yeah, it's not like a, it's not like a leather thumb, thumb strap which actually wraps over the back of the slide. Yeah, totally different animal. The question of what happens when you can get all the parts and the hardware and molds and formers and all this stuff, and you can buy it ready-made, there's a whole different kind of business person in the holster marketplace now than there was when I started and when you started. And what's really interesting is as I look back, I, I was going through some of my older emails and finding holster makers that I tried to correspond with early on and generally in 2008, 2009, 2010, every shop treated everything like a state secret. Everybody was super tight-lipped about just about everything where they bought their sheet from, what grade of plastic they used, where they got their hardware, what kind of jigs they used, like everything. Even conceptual stuff, like how they think about dialing in retention on their holster or what their big picture goals are when they think about blocking out a firearm. All those things were, you know, were kept very close to the chest. And for that reason, guys who were interested in business but were not necessarily interested in being craftsmen couldn't really enter that market because the manufacturing side of it was too much of a black box, which meant that there were a whole bunch of guys who were making holsters who were actually not good businessmen, but they weren't being outcompeted because they were competing a bunch of, against a bunch of other people of a similar temperament in terms of business and customer service and product design. And it was just, it was a totally different ecosystem. Right. And, and I didn't realize and, how much it had changed. That link I sent you to that one Oklahoma gun forum and that discussion of that particular maker who was like, you know, just consistently months and months and months and months behind projected lead times just as a matter of course and that only works if you're a wizard who has figured out this really proprietary kind of magic that you can then charge whatever you want for and act however you want to customers like it's a six months wait and you'll shut up and like it because i'm the only source for this uh which, which isn't a good attitude. That's never like an especially justified attitude to have. Um, but people, you know, customers would get stuck with that. And then on the other, on the, the, the flip side of that is that they would like develop an attachment to that, you know, like, oh, this guy's the well, best. I know he's, I know he's like a total soup Nazi, but he's, he's, he's totally the best because I need to uh, convince myself that, uh, 
uh, it was worth waiting yeah, 18 months for tolerating this abuse and waiting six months and, and <laughs> paying $200. I, 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 I need to feel like that was worth it. Do you think we're ending up in a situation where we've given thousands of chimpanzees typewriters and eventually you know, everyone, <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in the, you give a thousand chimps, a thousand typewriters and somebody writes Shakespeare, but I think maybe you could give that many chimpanzees, that many typewriters and have somebody write E.E. E. Cummings. <laughs> right, like, you'll get a couple haikus out of them for sure. Yeah, maybe a little, maybe a little bit of you know modernist concrete poetry that's just <laughs> right. You'll at least get Vogon poetry out of it. <laughs> the stream of consciousness stuff is amazing. So, back when we were hunting, when a lot of our time and energy was spent on hunting for hardware, how did that change the way you designed things? Oh man! So you you always design around your, your your current limitations. Back in the days of the hardware hunt, I was making a lot of like outside the waistband pancake holsters, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I was going to get that hardware to work and like not overstress it. So mm-hmm. I did start like shopping for or making like little rubber washers, so it would be harder to blow out those atrocious little aluminum posts yeah man i think i I think i bought every kind of fuel line and rubber hose that my local hardware stores stocked Mm -hmm. buy a foot of that and a foot of that and take it home and cut it all up into quarter inch lengths and then try using like oh too stiff nope too soft yeah the um (laughs) the windshield washer hose was usually pretty good man (laughs) i do not miss those days no not at all (laughs) The number of times when I shied away from a certain design feature or a certain way of building something because I could tell ahead of time that making the hardware to make that work was going to be miserable. Like, I agonized over wing angles on my OWB holsters because I was trying to find that perfect balance of it's enough curvature to blend with the body, but it's not so steep that you can't thread a belt, and it's not going to put too much stress on the belt loops but if it's too flat a skinny guy like me you tighten your belt and all of a sudden you're you're wrenching those belt loops in around your waist and they'll eventually split right or you're crushing and, down the light channel of the light bearing holster you're trying to make and then you don't understand oh, why man. it doesn't fit <laughs> and then you have to like put it on your belt hit it with a heat gun take it off your belt you know uh, like you have to do like those you know uh, the, the little heat gun two-step where you put it on your belt heat it take it off, heat it, put it on, let it cool, you know, and, and mess around until the thing actually fits. The days of trying on every single customer's holster multiple times. Oh God. I do not miss. And we were so proud about it too. Every holster gets test fit by well, me I mean, on the belt. And like, I still test fit. I still test fit a hundred percent of our product for sure. But, but that doesn't mean that I don't test IWB fit on my belt in your pants. Yeah, man. That was fine when you're doing like a couple holsters on a weekend. Totally not fine when you're delivering 500 of something. Like, oh my goodness, my hands are not going to function if I have to do and undo this many soft loops one after the other. I'm just going to be like, oh, dude, I'm going to have claws for hands. I still have like elbow and forearm trouble from having run those uh, presses so many times. Like the, just like the squeezing foam, those the, the, the clamps, the foam press, and I, I had them with the uh, screw clamps with those like big okay. wooden handles, and yep. uh, I I think I might have done permanent damage to myself over over the years of doing that because for a little while, in between, before we got to vacuum forming, 
we had a modified pressure forming process where we had taken a Glock 26 and cut off the, you know, everything from the trigger guard forward and built out a MDF protrusion that was Glock 19 or 17 length, sculpted that manually, manually. This was a bespoke piece of sculpture that we used. We also cut into the the, uh, uh, back strap of the gun and installed a metal plate with a couple pilot holes in it so we could locate this part in the press consistently, and we ran dowel pins through the, um, the foam press. And we had little metal plates that fit ahead of the trigger guard and under where the dust cover would be. So we could produce a holster that fit the entire range of Glock 9mm pistols and had a consistently flat, perfect portion ahead of the trigger guard for mounting hardware, for making the oh, man. And fighting, fighting that draping forward of the trigger guard and getting a recipe for that, when I first started adding wedges to the back of my appendix holsters and then all of a sudden the 50-50 line of my gun was no longer the 50-50 line of my mold, everything got so out of whack. Yeah, we built I chased in my little, tail on that so much. We built in little pressure plates. Yep. In the foam press. And these were all located by dowel pins that ran through the bottom of the press and out the top of the press. And uh, the foam w- was a little bigger, a little thicker in that spot. So it would always clamp down ahead of the trigger guard perfectly. Yep. And we'd wrap the plastic over, put the thing in the press, crank it down. And we were doing, we were trying to get vacuum forming results manually before we had realized we needed vacuum forming. And we must have made hundreds. We probably made a thousand holsters like that. I remember, so before there was Kydex Pro Forums, there was, I think it was called Kydex Forum. There was another website, and it was run by the same guy who I think owned at the time Old Faithful Holsters. And so it was one of the early hybrid companies that was selling kits. They sold oh, yeah, you. I remember them? Are they still around? They sold you a sheet of. They sold you a sheet of plastic, a punched out backer, and hardware, and they they walked you through the process of creating an outline cutout of your gun, and then heating up the plastic, and basically not vacuum forming, just dropping this little frame you made out of plywood or whatever you ended up using, dropping it around your gun, laying your gun on a flat surface, dropping the hot kydex over it, and then dropping this reverse cookie cutter around it and pressing it down so that you had a single plane for your mounting points to attach the shell to their backer and do the number of times i played with variations on that i i did a lot of scissor presses uh i call those a, a super wolf press or a what was his name jim iron wolf holsters i believe i, I think it? he passed away a couple of years ago actually really nice older guy who was making holsters kind of as a hobby in his retirement uh, but he had a really simple design for just a robust four-post, two-by-four frame that used a automotive scissor jack. Yeah. And you drove it with a drill with a socket on it. Super easy. And I made a number of versions of that, and I messed around a lot with multi-layer pocketed foam. When I was doing OWBs, I was doing asymmetrical, like 65-35 molding, not 50-50. <coughs> mm-hmm. And so I had three layers of foam on the top, two layers of foam on the bottom. I was mixing thicknesses, and then my middle piece of foam would actually have a cookie-cutter shape of that particular gun. 
so that I'd have a negative space that would collapse easily right where the gun was. <laughs> so I wouldn't crush that central foam too hard. Yeah. And I'd get heavy contact around the outline of my gun right away and lock down my material there and then finish the press by closing on the gun. And the complexity of like heating up all the kites, getting everything lined up. Like uh, I used to, oh man, I found templates in my drawer. I used to pre-cut all my OWBs. And so I would have um, a rough cut sweat guard and a low cut front, two pieces of Kydex, and I would staple them together <laughs> so that they'd be, they'd be aligned. And I was basically making an envelope yeah. okay. of Kydex. And then I would put that in the oven until it was supple enough at temperature and then pull it out, shove the gun in, adjust my cant angle, lay it in the press, grab the drill, drive the top of the press down, and then finish it with a socket wrench by hand to get the the right perfect amount of by-hand feel pressure, which, of course, changed as your foam degraded because it degraded a little bit more every time you cranked the press. Oh, yeah. And so it was a never-ending process of chasing your results. But, I mean, I remember meticulously mathing out what was the most efficient size that I could pre-cut my sheets of plastic down to so that I could nest out all these shapes. And I would, I would, I think I cut like, I was cutting like seven and seven eighths wide by like 14 or 15 inch lengths. And then cutting these two nested right-handed back shapes out of them. So I'd lay a template over and do this curvy line that crossed the center line. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then I'd bandsaw it out, and I would like take like 10 sheets at a time, stack them up, clamp them at both ends, and guide them through the bandsaw. So I was gang cutting, and it was super efficient. And I look back at this and go, oh, my goodness. Why did nobody slap me? And it was because everybody else was doing stuff at least as dumb as I was. <laughs> oh, yeah. We did stuff that was idiotic for ages. Oh, so first of all, before I get into the – before I confess my But you know what? Before I it confess literally, my sins. Uh, it you, it we, was state of the art. We, we were just talking about uh, the Old Faith, Faithful Holster kits. Yeah. I went to oldfaithfulholsters.com. When you click on their products, uh, you'll some of them you'll get this message. Thank you for your interest in Old Faithful Holsters and our IWB holsters. Unfortunately, this product has been continued, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Its design has been improved upon by our sister company, Alien Gear Holsters. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So they went from making holster kits for uh, consumers to making IKEA, yeah, making IKEA holsters. So at least you don't have to bake them anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. That's good. So I mean, when I, when I think back on things that for me felt like I I had arrived, like the first time I put an order in. For a bunch of four by eight foot sheets of Kydex, I felt like I was such a baller. I'm like, man, I've made it. I'm buying four by eights. I bet nobody else is buying four by eights. Like, you know. So the the company I'm buying my plastic from is like, this guy's buying what, like ten four by eights? It's not even worth taking his order. Get out of here. Right, and there's so, there's some company that's making, I don't know, like who who knows what, like aerospace components that are buying like shipping containers full of them from them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first the first time I got that, and then I realized I had to figure out how to get a whole bunch of 4x8s into the back of my Jeep Cherokee. 
And I, I literally had some friends meet me and meet the semi in a parking lot. Because you don't have a loading a, dock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, I met them 15 minutes away. You're holding them on the roof here, like, like it's a no, mattress. No, oh no, it, it gets it gets better. It gets better than that. Um, I I had them. I had some friends meet me at a parking lot, arm, 15 minutes from my shop. No, no, no. And this stuff came. It was on a four by eight foot pallet. It was all strapped down, and we didn't. I mean, we didn't have a pallet jack or anything. So we just dragged this thing off by hand. And then we carried it over to the building, and I picked this parking lot because I knew the building. I knew there were there was an there, were, there was external power, so I brought an extension cord and a skill saw, and we cut the strapping off this, and then I clamped a straight edge across it, and I cut the entire pallet's worth of plastic in half, in into four by fours, kneeling on top of it with a with a power saw in this parking lot running an extension cord up to the side of the building because I could bend four by fours and get them to fit in over my folded down back seat. And then I had to figure out what to do with this four by eight foot pallet. <laughs> and I was driving home. I got all this kydex in the back. It's like, this is totally awesome. But like, you just leave, it was leave a, the pallet in the parking lot. That's somebody else's problem. I actually now. just, I just, I just put it in their dumpster. <laughs> so let me tell you about the, the time that, I felt like super hot shit, even though I was doing it completely wrong. <laughs> Holster follies. Oh God. Oh. so bless me, Andrew, for I have for sin. I have I have sinned. <laughs> oh God, we should we should film this in the back of a car and call it uh, Holster Confessions. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be part of that show. Right. Uh, so we got into vacuum forming. Probably in 2013. Had to have been 2013. Yeah, 2013. I got a blue light tactical vacuum former, which was a woo woo stew, which was a piece of furniture, the same way that like an old television or an old radio from the the early part of the 20th century was like a a fixture of your home, like an oven, <laughs> right? Yep. This thing was enormous. And uh, the UPS guy dropped it, of course, because it's an enormous piece of equipment. And it, like, always leaked a little bit. And we chased that leak for years. So I said to myself, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to get a big vacuum former because that means we're going to vacuum form a lot of parts. Which, from what I know now, what you need is a bunch of small vacuum formers. That's way more efficient. So I said, we're going to get a custom two-foot-by-two-foot one because I'm the man and we're busy. And I'm going to jump into this in front of other people and do vacuum forming and, 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 and be doing this at scale that other dudes are own the world. I'm going to, I'm the man I'm going to get, I'm going to get the biggest one who can make me. Right. So I got a two foot by two foot vacuum former. And my, my position was, how am I going to heat a two foot by two foot piece of Kydex? Like you can't, like you can't get, like if, if I went to the store and bought an oven, I can't get one that's got four square feet inside of it they don't make that right so i'm like you know never mind all that we'll figure out how we're gonna heat four square feet of kydex at a time once we get this thing but we'll build an oven of course we can we're maniacs right we'll we'll just make one from scratch right so we set up the vacuum former we make sure the vacuum former works and then we proceed to build a heater for 
a two foot by two foot piece of kydex. And so you know how the side works where there's like like ceramic heating elements in the top and you've got some temperature control over it. What we did is we got a wire shelving rack at, with movable shelves in it. And we built out a box that was all like a, like sheet steel lined. So we built a wood box yep. with like a door in the front of it, like a pizza oven kind of. And we lined the whole inside of it with the sheet steel so we wouldn't set the wood on fire burn the building down right yeah and we put those seems reasonable we put ceramic coils heating coils on the top of it and ran that to a time and temperature controller so we could set the temperature and we could set the um cycle time so it, the the heater would turn off for some amount of time and turn on for some, for some amount of time so we could like keep it regulated we built out a little sheet metal platform for this thing so the kydex wouldn't be sitting on the wire rack we also got like a little computer fan and put it in the bottom of that to keep the air circulating so it wouldn't get a really mm -hmm. atrocious hot spot on it. And we figured out through brute force trial and error how to build a heater that would heat a two foot by two foot piece of kydex at a time. And we would throw it in the vacuum former and we'd have stack up all these sheets. And then we got a two foot by two foot router. The amount of time that we wasted making two foot by two foot molds, making a two foot by two foot heater heating two foot by two foot sheets of plastic because they took a while and it was like it required a lot of attention and then you run into the problem when you take the sheet off the vacuum former and put it in the router your perfect part registration in fixturing in one part of that array is going to be totally different by the time it gets to the other side which took us forever to figure out and it's not like visible notice it in weird inconsistencies like how like we've got a machine made mold and a machine cutting these out why are the parts all different yeah why do some of these edges not line up yeah yeah that was a nightmare because what we should have done was at the volume that we were doing this all at we should have had like small like one or two you know uh mold at a time vacuum formers and then a router with a trim guide but that didn't quite yet exist when we were doing this. I think you you had come up with that maybe six months after we had like gotten up to our neck in this process. <laughs> and you and you and you tried to pitch me the idea of, of the Swift Press and, and the vacuum forms that you were making. And I was so invested in what I was doing that I was like, I can't I'm like on this horse in the middle of a race. I can't get off of this. If I knew that I was eventually just gonna dump all of that anyway. And you would have dumped I, it sooner, but you didn't know. Yeah. If, if, if I could have seen that in a year or two, I would have just dumped all of that, regardless of whether or not it had been profitable and just changed streams. I would have done it and said the hell with it and sold the router to some someone who thought they needed a two foot router. Or I would have started making, you know, just kept it busy making guitar bodies or something and putting them on Amazon or eBay. Yeah. One of the absolute catastrophes that I managed to dodge by a combination of sheer dumb luck and poor cash flow was when I I bought my first blue light tactical vacuum former from Stu in 2013, got it right before Christmas, mm -hmm. and I came from a woodworking background, so I had quite a bit of experience making you know manually making router templates and doing freehand bandsaw cutting and sanding curves and like making wood shop style production tooling for making repeatable parts 
we were not doing anything with CNC. I used to work in a custom furniture shop. We didn't have any CNC. But we templated a lot of things. And if you're careful with your layout and you're consistent with your saw cuts, you can make pretty repeatable templates. And we could, you know, we could achieve pretty reliable parts interchangeability on all of our chair parts and things so we could really batch out lumber when it came in. Because you know, when I started at that company, every single piece of furniture was bespoke. Like when you started a batch of 20 chairs, you paired together two front legs, two back legs, a seat in the back, and those got hand-fitted, and then they had to remain together. So every single piece got marked with white wax pencil in every batch. We had to track every piece. That's so And for certain steps, it was, it was awful. For certain steps, we had to separate them and then reassemble them based on the markings on them. And oh, yeah, at the yeah. end, I'd, I'd, I'd have, send all I'd the markings off and With the, the TDI sheets. So, like, our, our mold for um, TDI knife sheaths would make 12 knives at a, uh, 12 sheaths at a time. So that's 24 fronts and backs. And you know that the router registration is going to be weird. And so I had figured out exactly how weird it was and how off it would be across the entire array. So I'd have the sheet, and before I broke all of the little tabs out of it, you know, so each yep. one each one was attached by tabs when the cutting was done, I knew that I could go, you know, I knew that the top left corner matched the bottom right corner. So I'd mark one, one, <laughs> two, two, and I'd have a sheet of these with Roman numerals on them. And if, we, if I was Wolf. doing five sheets of these, they'd have Roman numerals and an alphabetical marking too. So this would be sheet A, part seven. And I'd have to keep them all matched up throughout the entire process. And so I'd be sitting there with like, <laughs> like six dozen individually matched marked. pairs. And, the, and at some point in it, you like lose track of the one that you need and you're rifling through the little bin and it's like, and you're looking at it, and you're like, did I mark this? Is this an, is this an XI or an IX? <laughs> well, oh, this none no. of this fit. And then you just push it up an entire bin of individually marked parts. Go, what am I doing to myself? So I got my first vacuum former, and, and I was and at that point, splitting you like blue hate guns. that people order them from you, because then you start making them. <laughs> oh, no, another TDI sheath. Um, so I started bandsawing up my collection of blue guns. Um, oh, another another big mistake. I dropped like 500 bucks on Duncan's Outdoors cast aluminum holster molds. Oh, God. I don't know if you ever ran across those. For Kydex work, they were utterly worthless. They looked like they'd been made by an amateur with a sand casting setup who then cleaned up all the burrs just with an angle grinder. <laughs> they, they just they had angle grinder marks all over them. Every surface was coarse. They were they were pitted like they were terrible. Like, I got them, I took them out of the box, and I'm like, "You've got to be kidding!" The sand casting so poor. There's an impression of a seashell in it. <laughs> it was just like it was a total non-starter. Like I don't I don't know if I made a single holster that fit anything off a single one of those molds, but they were popular with leather holster makers because the tolerance requirements and the flexibility of the material was such that you could get away with a much wider margin of error and still have a reasonably acceptable level of fit. But I was taking a lot of the blue guns I'd acquired and I was, you know, trimming the grips off, shaving the sights off, and then using a little sled that I'd built to run on my bandsaw with a fence, 
you know, put a fresh blade on, tune the saw up so that the fence is adjusted for drift and everything's cutting true, and then split these blue guns. And then I was laying them out on uh, quarter-inch plywood boards, uh, pinning them in place with brad nails to locate them temporarily while I drilled them from the underside and then put in locating pins. Right, and then, and then you was, realize that the blue guns themselves aren't perfectly straight and that the bandsaw subtracts a tiny amount of material. Well, no, I mean, I could, I could compensate for kerf, and that whole system worked relatively well, except you couldn't scale beyond one copy of any mold. I had five Glock 19s. Even if I had cut them all at the same time on the same sled and had shimmed them the same way to account for kerf and had done everything the same, if I had batch processed them, I would get five different results off those five molds because they just weren't consistent enough. And so I was like, man, I, my thought was I was going to speed up production not necessarily by making large gang molds all of one thing, but of getting a larger vacuum former and having individual mold stations so I could put lots of different molds on it all at the same time. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, it it made sense because I was an idiot. <laughs> and so I was looking around and looking around and looking around and looking around, and I found a dude in Minnesota who had a Bellavac all-manual vacuum former with a 48 by 48-inch forming area. Right, because that's what we need. We need 48 by 48 inches. We, we I'm like, need... I'm like, that's perfect. I can buy Kydex sheets, cut them in half, throw them right on this thing, and I can form 32 holsters at a time. This is going to be amazing. And then I realized... I mean, the, the plan was... The plan was get a 4 by 4 foot router and form 4 by 4 foot sheets and then put the entire sheet on the router as one big monolithic thing and then go over it and trim out all the different stuff until I realized how ludicrously difficult it was going to be to reliably locate all the molds on the former bed in such a way that they, even if I machined a four by four foot mold on the router table, which once I thought about it was prohibitively complicated. And like either I'm going to tack down like 30 individual small pieces of stock and have to locate each of them and then have the machine run them as though they're one big continuous piece to create my 32 trimming stations, whatever I was going to have. Or I have to literally put a 48 by 48 by inch and a half piece of something up there, bolt it down, and then spend days cutting the whole thing. And then, of course, the first mold that's going to get revised is like one right in the middle somewhere. Like, Yeah. <laughs> and so I went back and forth with this dude for weeks. And he had bought that former. He was, he was using it to make plastic molds for some kind of decorative concrete casting stuff he was doing. Okay. It was some kind of landscaping, lawn and garden, where he was car he was making molds and then forming a negative in plastic and casting concrete parts in them. So application was totally different, and the former only had top heaters, no bottom heaters. Like it would absolutely have been a catastrophe. And I was ready to pull the trigger on it. And I just like couldn't come up Every time I almost had the money together to buy it, he wanted like ten grand for it. Every time I almost had the money together to buy it, something came up, and then all of a sudden I was a couple thousand dollars off again. I'm like, oh man! But you know what I what I realized is 
nobody else wanted that vacuum former either. (laughs) (laughs) I see that you're swimming. Would you like to buy my boat anchor? And it's like, (laughs) this guy clearly had a thing. You're in the water. You need an anchor. (laughs) He was desperately trying to get rid of, but he, he also was thankfully not so desperate that he was willing to just give it away for a song. Because if he had, I would have bought that boat anchor and it would have drowned me. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I remember, like, I was... I walked away from that equipment. When when I switched over to having you OEM everything for me, I had been doing, like, a consulting job for, 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 for a client. And I'm like, oh, well, look, I'm not using this Probotics Fireball Comet. If you guys want to mess around with that uh, and, use, you know, experiment with it, go ahead and use it. And I put it in their workshop and I left it there. <laughs> I walked away from that thing. I'm Thanks. Like, see you later. I'm like, I it's I'm not going to be able to sell this to anybody. I'm not going to get anything out of it. I don't want to. I don't want it to cost me anything storing it. It is now their anchor. It's a gift. Totally going to give you this gift if you could get it away from me. And I and I haven't when I... looked back or thought twice about that. When I built the first prototype Swift Press formers, which were small, they had like a 10 by 10 inch forming area. They were all built out of plywood. I was taping up all the edges with aluminum tape to make it airtight. I initially messed around with like trying to have a little recessed bed that my mold would drop down in so that I wouldn't have to wrap codex all the way down the edges of the mold. I'd basically just sit the mold bed so it was flush with the border around it and then close a lid over it and vacuum on it. Anyway, concept was sound, but... When I started doing that, very quickly, it made my blue light membrane former completely obsolete. Those those original BLT formers were made out of oak and melamine, and they were shellacked to seal the wood. Like they were, they were a project. They were a construction project. Yeah, they were. They were and, pieces of furniture. <laughs> and they came with that cool little piece of rope that was mounted to the corner of the table that you'd have to like drape out so it touched your mold so you could get air evacuation so that your you know your kydex wouldn't seal down to the table and trap air pockets. The first time I realized that I could just put a port directly under the center of my mold and not have to deal with that anymore, I'm like, wait a minute, did anybody else know about this? Is is this a thing? Have I just been out to lunch this whole time? Right. You know you and, you know you can run ports through your whole mold too. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'd been I'd been doing that on the BLT former, but I had never really I was still using that string and like you have to tape it down and every time you went to pull a shell off, it'd pull the string off, you had to replace it and it, it just was not a smooth process. And no question, if I had not had that former first, I would not have started building the formers that I ended up making and then I would not have produced the Swift Press and I would not have gotten into, you know, my side automated former that I have now. So Every step of that process was necessary, but they were not all equally fruitful. And there was a lot of learning what not to do, how not to make stuff. Well, what um, what always makes what I always wonder about is looking at what we're doing now. Who was doing it like this while we were struggling in 2013? Who okay? So who you would ask the, the right way while we were doing it the wrong way? Well, not necessarily the right way, but I'm I'm going to throw out some I'm going to throw out a list of names, just kind of free association of holster makers that I was paying attention to. This is not in order of scale or quality or relevance, but just who I was paying attention to. I remember looking at Hillsman Holster, Persex Systems, Caliban Cloak, 
Griffin Industries, which I believe were just private labeled Caliban cloak holsters, as far as I could tell. Yeah. Um, and they had this really weird um, fold CNC cut folded Kydex progressive belt loop that fit, you know, 1.25, 1.5, 1.75 by having a different series of notches that your belt would seat into. Yeah. And there were all these things I'm like, huh, I wonder how they're doing that. I wonder why they're doing that. They were clearly getting a different kind of result in their forming that made me think that they were vacuum forming. I think they were. I don't know what their molds were like at that time. But when I compared the product that I was making to the product they were making, there were clear differences in the end result. There were certain really characteristic areas, like certain things like rails would stand out very sharply on theirs that would be much more blunted on mine. And so whatever they were doing, their process allowed them to produce details and things that my process couldn't do. I don't know for sure how well their holsters fit, but there was definitely something observably different about them. And then another one that was very different, very much its own thing, was Dale Fricky. Yeah. And his holsters had a very distinctive look. They were very generalized. They were molded tightly in only a very few key locations right in front of and right on top of the trigger guard. The molding was tight, and everywhere else it was very very relaxed yeah uh, and i think he was using 093 all the time when everybody else was using 080 a lot of guys were still using 060 so i don't know if those guys i would say were doing it correctly but they were definitely doing it differently than we were and whatever problems they were facing were not the same as the problems we were facing there was a company for a little while called spartan village who was doing everything yeah. so cleanly that i just couldn't imagine how they were doing it when I started seeing rear serrations disappear off people's sweat guards, that was a huge tell about what kind of molding process they were using and how they were building their molds. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because there are a lot of things that if you're working from a blue gun or you're working from any kind of cast replica, unless it's already heavily regularized, you're going to see these characteristic details. X products, X holsters was another one. And I think those they're actually still around. I think they may have jumped to Amazon primarily. X Concealment, concealment sorry. Yeah. X Concealment and then uh, Tucker Gun Leather and Garrity Gun Leather or Garrett Industries, the Silent Thunder holsters, I looked at very carefully because they were, you know, those were the guys who were doing leather-lined Kydex. Okay. And uh, Fist Holsters, another one. A friend of mine had a Fist Holster for a, a little J-frame. And they were using 040, and the holster was sewn together. And that was a really interesting and I think a very viable solution. It was super low profile, but not very durable. No. And so when I go to these websites, like it's a blast from the past. Like I see pictures of holsters and I'm convinced the product photo is like six or seven years old. Like I've seen that before. And some of those companies OEM now, like uh, Skull Crush Holsters, which is a really nice, really nice name for plausibly explainable defensive products but those i i'm almost positive those are rebranded garrett industries holsters but when i first saw x concealment they're cnc cutting and then have they're using a jig to fold they're making they're still making their own overhooks out of kydex and that that amazes me it just it just amazes me that that anybody still either has an economy of scale that makes that more viable to do it that way or they just are so committed to having that look or that particular shape that they won't adopt any of the off-the-shelf hardware that comes 
from any of the other companies that are selling a lot of hardware these days. And so it's really interesting to see how some companies have changed, some companies have not. And a lot of the way that they do things, the products they made were driven by their capabilities. Yeah, and, and they stuck with it. There, there's like a lot of inertia in some of these products. If you go to xconcealment.com and look at their OWB holster, the C holster, one of the, fir- the first time I saw this, it boggled my mind because uh, like some of the holsters from Tenacore that have integrated Kydex belt loops, the C holster has integrated Kydex belt slots. It uses number six eyelets to reinforce the top and bottom corners so that there's more material in the shoulder. They're not taking big holes out and putting big eyelets in. But the thing that really boggles my mind is they are CNC machining a faux stitched pattern. Yeah, how much time does that take per unit? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the really curious thing for me was, are they machining it while the holster is still flat? Or are they doing it on the contour? That's got to be done while the shell is flat. Yeah. Looking at how these companies were doing it, where their tooling allowed them, you know, for me for a long time, the holy grail was going to be to figure out how to use a CNC to cut all the shapes I needed while the sheet was still flat and cold, and then heat it up, shape it, and then have done all my edge buffing and everything before I formed. And then once it's formed, it's just done. Put the belt loop on, it's done. And for certain kinds of holsters, I think that's still very much a viable approach. And I think some of the companies like Comtac do that. And that's just my observation from looking at the way their CNC trim marks remain perpendicular to the edge as the edge wraps over contours on the gun, which you wouldn't be able to do if you were machining it in its 3D shape. But it's fascinating to me to see all the different ways. Like, people were skinning cats dozens and dozens of different ways. And the particular problems that I was facing... It was so easy to look at somebody else's thing and think, man, the grass is so much greener if you just have a CNC. Yeah. Or the grass is so much greener if you just have a vacuum former, a big vacuum Oh, my former. gosh. This, co- this company is... still has a send us the blue gun and get a free holster program. Do they really? Well, I mean, really? I don't know if they're still making stuff. Because I couldn't get to this product page unless I Googled it specifically because you get you can't get to it from the homepage. It just goes to a broken link. The huh. C-series holster. Yeah. Yeah, Crazy. when did I when did we see this at first? This is from 2000 and the the bottom of this website says 2010. Oh, I mean, I was yeah, I was definitely creeping on their website a long, long, long time ago and pouring over every picture I could see me like, "Oh, how did they do that?" When I when I first started making holsters, I was using hex hex drive screws for everything. It was like, "Oh, Phillips for the peons." Like, you know, we're going to we're going to use we're going to use hex. And at a certain point, I just was like, Andrew, what are you who, doing? Who has a hex key to adjust this? Like right now, I'm in I'm in the office at home, and down here is a basement which is completely full of photography and gun equipment, like wall to wall, like anything you could possibly want. And we've got a running gag around here about finding some piece of equipment and then also finding its corresponding little baggie of hardware, because everything that you've ever bought comes with some extra hex key and some other little hardware and let me tell you no matter what you're working on you could have five different hex key sets you don't have the hex key you need for the thing that's in your hand when you pick something up all the hex keys know and they hide from you however phillips heads love you 
wherever you put your Phillips head screwdriver down, it's exactly where you left it. There's one in every drawer in your house. You've got one in your range bag. It's like there's no reason. You got one in your Swiss Army right. knife. Like you could just look at them and sweet talk them right, and they'll turn in the direction you want them to turn. Unlike hex keys who hide from you. I could go to Lowe's tomorrow and buy five kits of hex keys and lock them in the gun safe in their original packaging. And the ones and when I pick when I pick here. something up and it'll be like Schrodinger's hex keys, I'll pick up the, the part that I need to adjust, walk over to the safe and open it, and they'll they'll, be gone. they they will have just like phased out of this reality. <laughs> so I went I went back on the Griffin site and just looked. You can buy their progressive OWB loops as a standalone item. Guess on price? Oh, uh, $35. Super close. 30 bucks <laughs> for, belt, for, for a pair of OWB loops. Discrete carry concepts doesn't even cost that much. And elite, I mean, they're, those are metal. Yeah. I mean, like, those whew. are metal with like science behind them. But that's that must be the economy of scale that they're operating at. Yes. Or, I mean, if the most recent review on that product page is from 2015, I'm suspicious that they're not really operating on that scale much yeah. anymore. But you never know. It was a big adjustment for me to start to realize how much my impression of how big or how successful a holster company was didn't necessarily jive with reality and how certain shops could look a good game. And in reality, that didn't necessarily mean they were actually putting out that much stuff. That's very true. And there were certain companies where like their stuff looked awesome and I have never in my life actually run across any of their holsters out in the wild anywhere ever oh no me neither well and and then the, the the flip side of that coin is you see shops that are really busy and you see their gear everywhere you imagine that they're making money hand over fist but somehow they're engaged in a process which doesn't yield them enough profit for the volume they're putting out they're like running it by the skin of their teeth going broke at a thousand units yeah. a week that's that that's the it's other crazy. side of that on a much more serious note changing topics a little bit building companies get super lonely and yeah working through all these all these challenges and these frustrations and production pain points and cash flow and the hardware hunt and starting to network when i finally started to be able to actually network with some other holster makers and found out that we were not all trying to cut each other's throats and that all of us were in the same boat. Right, like no, no, no one else here has the resources to cut your throat. <laughs> They're too busy trying not to cut their right, own throat. Right, exactly. They've got a knife in one hand, and it's like Dr. Strangelove, where like their other hand is fighting to keep the knife out of themselves. <laughs> so talking to owners of other companies and realizing that we're facing the same challenges, that most of us have made the same kinds of mistakes that we deal with the same difficulties in customer service. We're managing the same kinds of expectations. We're trying to solve the same problems. And we often come up with the same insufficient solutions as each other. Like, hey, this is what I tried. Yep, tried that too. How'd it work for you? Not good. And for you? Huh, same. Not good. That kind of stuff is everywhere. And the same way that the hardware race has been a rising tide that raises all boats because the economy of scale of companies coming into that space and pursuing holster companies as their market has meant that all kinds of projects that I could never have funded by myself have been funded by me and 40 other guys who have nothing to do with each other but all have use for the same thing. And if one person's willing to make a business out of spearheading those projects, 
they actually happen and then we all buy them and use them. But the ways in which that has changed design for holsters, it's kind of unintuitive in ways. So when I think about the holsters that I looked at a lot in 2010, 2011, everything seemed much more distinctive to oh, me. Oh, yeah, then. you could, you could Even look, though, tell holsters at a glance who was making it. And I can still do that with certain companies of that vintage. But if you show me 10 companies that started in the past year, I have a very hard time telling them. Oh, no, if you, if you put your holster, Tom's holster, Spencer's, JM, mine, Tenacore, and armadillo concealment all in front of me i can pick them all out and those are all names that have been around i think for the past 10 years yeah i remember the first time i talked to booth i just cold called him i'd run across the x for i'm like huh that's an interesting concept never thought of doing that i remember multiple nights just standing out in the road out in front of my shop because cell reception inside my metal sided wooden pole barn is atrocious and i remember that summer multiple times standing outside under a street lamp in the dark with bugs flying around talking to booth for hours commiserating on everything and realizing that basically every challenge i was facing he was also facing or had faced and it's just like oh man such a relief to know that i'm not crazy that i'm not totally alone in this it really was helpful. Even though the, the goal of the conversation wasn't to like find solutions, it was super helpful just to talk to somebody else who fully understood. Oh, yeah, definitely. So the next part of that is that uh, there's a lot of that across business owners beyond our manufacturing field. So as the business grows, I get put in touch with you know dealers, for example, and we wind up in, in, in the same circumstance where it's like, well, I don't necessarily, like, I have an idea for a product and I don't necessarily have the resources to get it made, but I know that you could sell a whole bunch of them. So I've got everything worked out except for the funding on this project. I just need to know that it's going to pay for itself. How many do you want to buy off the bat? And instead of it being, you know, 40 dudes who don't really know each other emailing. So I, I think it was 2012, maybe, I put out a video telling people that they should email index fasteners and tell him that you want Coyote Kydex in stock. And he woke up the next morning to 100 emails and then stocked it. Like, like I didn't, I didn't have enough money at the time to say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to a pallet of, Kyde, of Coyote Kydex, except he woke up the next morning to 100 emails, which justified it. Now, I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily do that all the time with manufacturing a product, but I can find someone who will buy enough of the initial quantity that it justifies doing the project so at least we start off at zero or in the black for the total we're not Mm -hmm. we're not in the red to get anything done and that is the same kind of lonely small business owner who like needs something fresh and is looking for a solution and you call them up and you're like hey what emails did you get from customers today and they're like oh my god i can't i can't believe this the, the the problem that i'm chasing down with this person and then you offer them an opportunity and a hand in the darkness of the cave of running your own business and, it, and everybody gets yeah the- especially on the customer service side i've often been in conversations most commonly on facebook groups and there are a lot of solutions i look at customer service on on two levels i'm trying to keep the customer happy deliver what they want 
and I'm trying to do that with a minimum waste of my time, effort, and money. Those two things are in parallel. They're not in competition. It doesn't benefit me to save tons and tons and tons of time by making the customer atrociously angry right off the bat. On the flip side, it might not be worth it to make a really recalcitrant customer finally happy if it takes obscene amounts of time. And so balancing those two and realizing that often the happiest solution for me is going to be the one that resolves the problem the quickest, even if it costs me more money. Oh, yeah. So I used to be in, a, in, in a, of the mind where like, you know what, if somebody emails me in with a problem, I'm going to diagnose their issue. I'm going to be like, look, we, you know, I'm going to help you figure out how to make it fit. I'm going to walk you through every minute of this and I'm going to get this holster working for you. And I reached a point where it depends on the vibe of the email and I can't quite quantify it. If they email asking for help specifically in making it work, I offer a whole litany of solutions. If they're like, hey, my holster's uncomfortable, I want to return it, I'm just like, absolutely fine, here you go. And I just forward their email immediately over to the shipping department, and they get a return label, and that's the end of it. And all it takes is for me to just click forward to, to the shipping department. And, and instead, you know, in, in the past, I would have been like, oh, really, what's uncomfortable about it? Let me interrogate you about you know, what's uncomfortable and whether or not, you know, I can help you and sort of like coax you into helping you. And then 10 emails later, I'm frustrated with them and they're pissed that they haven't been able to return it yet. And I'm like, why why even bother? Just, okay. Like we live in a world where Amazon makes everything easy to return. And like, as soon as like you get your money back from Amazon, as soon as the tracking says that it's been dropped off at the UPS store, you know, the thing could be smashed to pieces in the box. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like they just give you your money back and, and people kind of expect that kind of level of service. So if somebody has a specific question, I answer their specific question. If they're like, this, this doesn't work for me. I don't go into the whole rigmarole of, oh, what exactly doesn't work for you anymore? Because yeah, I'm like, my, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to feed my ego by finding out that they're doing something wrong. Or like, like even if they're having an issue that they're equating to, oh, this holster just doesn't work and I want to return it. Even if they're having it like a, like a, like a user error issue, I'll just say, okay, fine, return it. Like even if I had like gone to an interrogation that would have uncovered a user error issue, I'll make them happy by making their return process easy. When I see guys struggling with customer service and they're getting angry dealing with their customers, oftentimes it seems like they view the customer as an adversary and they're trying to like prove the customer wrong or prove it's the customer's fault, prove that they didn't design the thing wrong, prove that the holster actually is comfortable and the customer is just being a well, big you baby. can run into that. So, like, if if you're in the circumstance where your process takes forever and you're like chained to the oar and beating the drum and whipping yourself and steering the boat, when you need to deal with the customer, that becomes like another obstacle that you need to deal with, and it's another vector for you to discover a personal deficiency in either you know rowing the boat or beating the drum or whipping yourself or steering the boat you know like there's there's any like the customer could be having an issue with any number of those things and it's easy to feel attacked in that circumstance when you're up to your neck in your whole business and everything is a little bit behind where you want it to be and you're stuck doing all these things that you're not especially good at and you feel inadequate about all of them and you're like put upon to get it all done and somebody says, I've got a problem with what you're doing. And you're like, oh, boy. 
please now tell me a chance about it. for me to attack an external manifestation of everything that I hate about myself right now. <laughs> Boy, you think about customer service on no, a whole so, different so level. No, so when I man. see someone who's like really mad at, you know, like this person's wrong and they're an idiot and I'm going to put their put up screenshots of this email that I had with this person who's a dummy on my Facebook page to feel better about it. I'm like, you know, this is an effigy of yourself that you're burning in a certain way. <laughs> like, <laughs> So yeah, finding, finding ways that the customer feels like they came away with a win. Cause I, I definitely have had customers approach the customer service interaction initially with a very aggressive and adversarial lead in. They're oh they they show they're up clearly fight. blaming me for the whole thing and I better make them happy I better I better move heaven and earth and in those kind of circumstances the fastest solution that gets them out of my hair is almost always worth whatever it costs even if it's just like you know I'll refund your money and you can oh, keep I've, the holster I've, I've have a that. great day I've done that in the past I've got a story about a guy it starts before the purchase he sends back and forth with me probably a dozen total emails asking questions about a product places an order and then immediately follows up in his email to make some kind of change I think he wanted a skeleton holster and then he decided that he wanted an access and I'm like listen I've only charged you for a skeleton holster it's like this plus a whole bunch of other stuff I think his order was like like a hundred bucks worth of stuff maybe Maybe more than that. Like, I think it was like $140 worth of stuff. I'm like, listen, I'll just make it an access for free and send it to you. And I like wrote a note on his order. And somehow like at the end of that week when everything shipped out, he wound up with a with a skeleton instead of an access. But his shipping order... Listed a skeleton. Right. He, paid he got for a skeleton. literally everything that he paid for. It just didn't include the free thing I, was gonna, I said I was going to send. He receives his order and then charges back his credit card for the whole amount before he emails me and then emails me i say oh yeah sure i'll i'm sorry i've got a spare one right here i'll send it out to you keep everything and it was at that point that i discovered he had done the charge back and i and i emailed him back and i'm like hey you know technically you've just stolen from me i don't know if you're aware of that but you got everything you said you got everything you paid for i have it in writing that you got everything that you paid for because you just emailed me to let me know that you got everything that was that you received, received it all what i'm gonna do is your access is already on the way. You've got everything else. I want you to keep all of it, keep all of the money, and never do business with me again. And I would recommend you go somewhere else if there was someone I knew who deserved a customer as bad as you. Did you actually put that yeah. little stinger on the end? I said I would recommend you to a, a, another business if if I knew anyone who deserved as poor a customer as us. I had one customer contact me, and he asked about getting a holster warrantied. And this was in the old days. I was still using... I was still bending my own .125 Bolteron belt loops. It was a Glock 17 OWB threaded barrel, full spike guard, 1.75 belt loops. Pretty standard stuff. And uh, he asked to send his holster back and have it replaced. And I, I said, sure. I mean, I'll take a look at it. He sends it back, and I open the box, and it's a potato. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Wait, like, a, like, a, like an he actual decided... spud? No, no, no. He had decided he wanted to let, to adjust the retention on the holster. So he had put the whole thing fully assembled into his kitchen oven. <laughs> <laughs> and had and had heated it up. And then put, had turned tried... the broiler on. <laughs> <laughs> and so he sent me back this thing and like 
the wing angles had flexed, the wings weren't straight, the belt loops had collapsed, and like it was it was just a potato. <laughs> I'm looking at this going, what on earth? Like what? How in my Did you brain want I couldn't form a complete sentence. Oh, I I sent him a replacement holster immediately. I'm just like, okay, I guess this is a thing that people would do. I had a guy email me once. and It it would never have occurred to me. I had a customer email me once. He had emailed asking where the hell his his TDI sheaths were. He's like, why don't I have tracking for these yet? And I'm like, "Uh, well, I don't know. I don't, what email did you use to order? Like, I don't, I don't see anything in here from you. Like, like, I've got no record of your name or your email in this system and he's like that's that that's weird next day he emails me he's like oh the order finally showed up but i'm really unhappy with what i got from you and i'm like really it's like yeah these tdi sheets aren't anything like what i thought they would be like they're 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 i'm I'm like really dissatisfied with them because send me a picture of what showed up right and he sends me a picture of this pair of tdi sheets which are absolute abomination it looks like they were made by beavers like they're, they're just like, like the, they're just they're the most they were never heated they were chewed right, into they shape. were the, the shoddiest things i've ever seen i'm like we didn't make those he's like yeah you did i'm like no we didn't ours come out of a essentially machine process where there is no way that they could possibly look like that they're, first of all it's impossible for the process we use to output that result and two if it did, we would not have shipped it to you. You did not order these from us, and I don't have a record of, of getting these, of, of, of getting an order from you. Like, I don't have your email, Nothing. variations or errors in spelling. You know, like, you don't exist here. Like, this, this, these didn't come from us. He's like, well, you're not going to pull the scam on me, and, and th- th- you're not going to get out of not making these right. I need you to make this right. I'm mad. And 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 I can't believe that you would treat a customer like this. And I just found out that my wife bought them from somewhere else. <laughs> and and so I was like, oh yeah, okay. Well, would you like a coupon code for a, a yeah. real sheath? Would you like a discount? <laughs> That's funny. I definitely have had somebody email me with complaints about a holster and follow up with pictures. And then I'd be like, email back, be like, yeah, boy, I'd be dissatisfied with that holster too. You should talk to the guy who made it. <laughs> yeah, I've had people send me broken holsters. Like I, I, I got an email from someone once. Like I, oh, I, I broke my holster. I need a holster warranty. And without like looking into whether or not they were a customer, I was just like, sure, here you go. Here's the address. Send it back. I'll send you a replacement, whatever. And it shows up, and I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, we didn't make this. Like I'm standing there holding this broken holster. I'm like, this is somebody else's. This is somebody else's product. Do you want us to just make you one? <laughs> like while it's here, you know. One of my favorites. I actually had I had a police department reach out to me. And it was initially kind of a, a very cold email, like "Dear Sir or um, Madam." Well, no, it was a detective emailing, and everything about it, he, he was basically saying, "I'm investigating." I think it was an officer-involved shooting, actually. And you know, he's like, "I think this holster might have been one of yours, and I want you to, have to take a look at it." And so, and he sent me these pictures. I'd never examined the physical specimen, and it was a Kydex Glock OWB holster that was significantly damaged it looked like the gun had been ripped out through the front of the holster oh my god did they did and they shoot through the holster no like it was cracked from the mouth of the holster about two-thirds of the way down like somebody had grabbed the gun and just ripped it out and had cracked oh, wow. the kydex 
And the belt loops were broken on the back. They were Kydex. And it had been assembled with screw posts from the front and flathead screws from the back with no finish washers of any kind. So they had run flathead screws with a tapered underside straight into the Kydex belt loops. And the belt (coughs) loops had failed. Yeah, of course they did. And he's like, yeah, well, you like you... If you have an inclined plane, a screw that's metal, and you're tightening it against this softer material, it's going to win. And as carefully as I could, in a single reply, walked him through all the salient details of that holster that clearly demonstrated that it was not something... I really felt like somebody was fishing to pin liability on me or something. It felt very uncomfortable. It's like I I know enough about what's wrong with this to make it obvious that I would have never made it like that. And I can show you examples of all my existing work from the time I started to now, and nothing I've ever made has ever had that profile. It has never had that hardware. It has never had belt loops that look like that, and it's never been assembled in that way. But it was just like, whoa, somebody put out this thing that was, like, really maybe not good. It was that, maybe it was that dude you and had to buy the domain from. It was not. This was years before that. And that will be a story for another podcast. So let's wrap this up for tonight. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I think we, at some point we should have just a like 15 minutes of best of customer (laughs) service stories because I'm sure we've got, you know, John and I have a, John and I have an ongoing email chain that we call today's winner and it is a source of constant amusement. And what's really helpful about it is it gives me a totally non-aggressive way to just quickly share with somebody else who can completely understand where I'm coming from the particular thing that showed up in my inbox that just had me yeah. scratching my so, head on any given day. A note to customers, and, customer service doesn't start when you contact us. It starts with the website, wherein we anticipate and imagine every question you could possibly have about what it is we're trying to offer you and provide for you. And if you read the website, it will read your mind. That's where the customer service starts, where we know ahead of time what you're going to ask and we answer it for you. And most of what you need to know is right there on the website. And referring people to check out the website is not bad customer service. It's where we've done, where we've made enormous time and money investments in order to make this process crystal clear and easy for you before you even think to ask a question. At some point, we'll also talk about holsters and patents in a fun conversation I had by email with Mark Craighead of Crossbreed Holsters back in the day. Oh, really? He emailed you? Oh, no, no. I emailed him. 